the American Theatre Wing, and the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts bring you the American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre. This session, The Sound Designer. Hello, I'm Pia Lindstrom with the American Theatre Wing, and with me is sound designer Otz Munderlo. Welcome. Thank you. What sounds does a sound designer design? <laughs> well, let's see. Uh, when most people think of a sound designer, you probably would think right away of sound effects, dogs barking, thunderstorms, cars passing. Mm -hmm. And so there are three real, three parts of what a sound designer does. What a sound designer does is the effects for a show. Then a sound designer can do the actual miking of a show, if it's a musical. And sometimes, if it is, is or is not a musical, the sound designer can, has nowadays been taken to composing. So he sort of, sometimes he can combine the role of composer and sound designer because he is actually providing the background for the play. So it sounds like a sound designer needs to have what attributes? A good ear? Absolutely. Good ear. Uh, logic. <laughs> right. <laughs> a sense of how it's going to sound in the theater, and a sense of is it right for the piece itself? Because there are a million different dog barks or a million different storms, you know, and so you need to know. Generally speaking, the director will say, We want a wind to blow across the Macbeth, but we want it to be a wind like an Arctic wind or. So you get a lot of input from the director, but then you go into generally, generally these days it's mask sound, this, the sound effects studio, which is still on Ninth Avenue. Because most sound shops, which used to be located in Manhattan, now are outside of Manhattan due to real estate. But mask sound kept their Ninth Avenue um, studio for, so that people could go in there and get sound effects. So when you say mask sound, do you mean there are CDs full of different sounds? Not only CDs, but hundreds of BBC CDs, hundreds of Disney effects. I mean, people actually publish like at 300 CDs. And on each cut, there are five different versions of the, of the effect. Of the wind blowing. Of the wind blowing, or the storm howling, or the screen door creaking, or so. You get to pick out the one that you want, and you get to take it into the director. Or if you're lucky, you get the director to come there, which is the good part about having it in the city. Yeah. Because then the director can get a feeling for if it's wrong or right, right there. Mm -hmm. And if it needs to be shorter, if whatever it needs to be in the studio, and then John Kilgore or David Bullard can like edit it right there in front of them, which is now done all visually, of course. It's all done on a Mac and you can look at the sound wave and cut it off here and then make it put reverb onto it and make it sound. But if you can get the director to go to the studio, it usually ends up being happier. He usually ends up being happier when we get into the theater. Once you get into the theater and you know yeah, the, the technical rehearsals start, everyone is in the theater. By everyone, I mean the stagehands start at 8 a.m. Mm -hmm. The actors come at 1, so you work 8 to noon. Noon to 1 is lunch. 1 o'clock, the actors come, and they can be there till midnight. Mm. So 
once that starts, you're never going to get the director into a sound shop. Yes. And that's the point at which you have to then go and guess what, how to fix this and bring it back to the theater. And he either likes it or doesn't like so it. So you have to have a sense of style and period. That's correct. I mean, if there are cars going outside, you have to know what kind of what cars. What kind of cars, that's year. correct. And you have to research what year mm -hmm. most things were. Uh, as I said, uh, you know, you, if in the 19, uh, the play I was doing, Mr. Goldwyn, which takes place in 1952, mm -hmm. clearly it's hard to, uh, even if you did all 1952 records, people would not necessarily know it's 52. But you certainly don't want to do anything in the 60s or, or 59 or... Or if there were a radio playing, you'd have you'd to have know... You'd have to have something of the Rosemary Clooney singing, Come On To My House. <laughs> or, because, ev and 1952 was interesting, it was the beginning of rock and roll mm -hmm. and the end of big band era. So yeah, I was trying to get something that was forward-looking, mm -hmm. but yet Samuel Goldwyn wouldn't necessarily have been playing rock and roll. So all of that you have to take into effect. Who's playing the radio, the, the phonograph? And what would they be listening to? So a person who does the kind of job you have has to have a, a very good knowledge of musical history? Yes. Of hi his styles in general and history? Correct. What are, there, and what are you, their skills uh, Now with the web, you, though, you can pretty much research. Oh, okay. You know, it's, it's so you have to know how to use a computer. You have to know how to <laughs> use a computer now, and you also have to know, you know where to go to look right. for when was this record published. Mm -hmm. When was it popular? You know, things, things of that nature. What sort of people become sound designers? That's a good question. People who want to do something in the theater. Mm -hmm. um, people who have a certain proclivity towards electronics. And people who can get along with other people, right? Because if you're doing... Uh, Something with a, with a star mm -hmm. like Meryl Streep, you want to certainly be able to go and speak to her and get along. Mm -hmm. And a singer, you have to have her confidence. That's correct. His confidence. That's correct. That is correct. You definitely have to. Well, who hires you exactly? Well, I've lived so long that in the, I suspect, sound design just started with, uh, su with Superstar. So... From my point of view, it wasn't that long ago. Mm -hmm. But Abe, Jacob, started on Superstar and Hair. Mm -hmm. And he happened to be around when Tom O'Horgan needed help. So Tom O'Horgan said, Abe, could you help us out here? We're and Abe was the first sound the designer. The first sound designer. And, and so he actually came in and specified, changed the speakers and said, here's what we should do to make this work. So is it usually the director who hires you or the producer? In the olden days, it was the director, okay. because it was the director who was the power center. So you have to get along with the director. Absolutely. You have to get along with the stagehands. Correct. Do you hire the stagehands, or you collaborate in the choosing of the stagehands who are going to perform your to be the sound, sound operator? Operators? Absolutely, absolutely. Generally speaking, the sound designer does hire the operator, although uh, we don't pay them. Mm -hmm. The producer pays them. And they are now in local one if it's here, but they have to be in the union. Right. And it's, it's easy, though, because there are very, very few people who want to do the job. What? Really? It is true. Really? It's an open market here? 
Well, it's an open market because the pressure is so great. Oh. The pressure is so great. And the blame is, is obvious and immediate. <laughs> it's still the only place where the director can go in the middle of the show and get immediate gratification. Oh. You know, so when the director is standing next to you saying, make it louder, you know, you make it louder, and they are so happy to be standing at the console because they can't really go to the lighting guy and say, make it brighter, because he only knows which circuits, 81, mm -hmm. 87. So he sort of needs the lighting designer to tell him what will make it brighter where the actor is standing. So a person who goes into this sort of work needs to have a uh, calm personality who can handle uh, <coughs> many temperaments? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And I suspect devious enough to try to get your way. <laughs> I see. Although that's not always the case. I mean, uh, so you I, have to be a team player. You have to be a team player, and I had actually thought, in especially in the beginning, there was a lot more of you actually had to know what the audience wanted to hear. Nowadays, there seems to be less of that. It seems to be as though. Nowadays, you're more sort of a gun for hire. In other words, you're there, but 50 people will tell you how it should sound. When it's subjective. Totally subjective. Totally subjective. But now, how do you deal with, as, as the corporate people are taking over in Long Broadway, mm -hmm. and it's less about David Merrick, one, when Lisa Kirk was wearing a wireless microphone, David Merrick wanted it one way, and Gower Champion wanted it another. Mm -hmm. But that was just two people. So if one of them was running up to you, you knew what was coming. <clears throat> now you have 16 <laughs> That's people right. running up to you. have 10 people yeah, okay. from the music department. So you have to know how to deal. One of the qualities then is to be able to deal with these 16 people. Correct. So you need kind of management skills, it sounds that like. That is probably true. As well as the good ear. What about dexterity? Do you actually have to have that um, physical dexterity? Yes, because there's a lot of that in the setting up of the sound. Because the sound, what the sound designer still does is, in fact, equalize the room, which means mm -hmm. you put a certain noise into the room, which on a scope looks totally flat. And then when you put the microphone, the measuring microphone out, if it isn't totally flat, which it isn't, there are peaks and valleys. Mm -hmm. That's actually how the noise exists in this room. Now, some of that's good. And some of it's not good. So the sound designer still gets to put the set, filter set on this, which then can take down the ones that are obnoxious. So that, they, so that when microphones feed back, for instance, it's about a certain frequency acting in a certain room. So you can look at what, at what is making the, exciting the room, mm -hmm. and you can dial that down in that speaker. So you have to have some knowledge of electronics. Uh, yes, that's true. So this is another, another thing that you, that's you correct. need. What kind of education would you suggest that a person get to well, the learn trouble, all these things? <laughs> the trouble is that Broadway <laughs> is such a small, segmented mm -hmm. thing. And sound equipment is very, very expensive. Mm -hmm. uh, a wireless microphone, a Sennheiser wireless microphone, and a transmitter is $50,000 for one. You have one here. Yes, I do. You want to show us this, the $50,000? This is, is $50,000. <laughs> okay. So I this hope you don't have to pay for that. No, no, no. The, the, but <laughs> the producer pays for The producer for it. pays for it. Okay. So, so this is a Sennheiser. They make less expensive models. Right. 
but all Broadway shows use Sennheiser. Most TV studios use Sennheiser. So a person who is interested in um, electric guitar, in uh, CDs and playing, having speakers, a, right. a young person like that might, might sort of cotton to this sort of thing. They might. The, but as I said, the problem <laughs> is that the budget. Oh. If you're going to do a community yes. theater production yes. of uh, Guys and Dolls, you know you have to paint the flats. Yes. And you probably have to have some lights so that you see the actors. But what you don't know, if you're doing it in Allentown, Pennsylvania, at the community theater, is it doesn't occur to you that you're not going to be able to hear the actors until someone comes in the middle of the rehearsal and says, you know, we're not going to be able to hear because the drums are so loud and the trumpets and what are we going to do? But a sound system for a Broadway show can easily cost the sound rental company a million dollars. So they then want to amortize that but Broadway sound companies, unlike rock and roll sound companies, Broadway sound companies are sort of based on amortizing over two years. Mm -hmm. So they expect it to be a hit, <laughs> which may be a little foolish, <laughs> right, but right. Uh, uh, in rock and roll, they expect the equipment to turn over in six months. That means the rental price for this would have to be four times higher from a company that does not do Broadway sound. Let's go back to the education. What would, would you suggest for a person who w was thinking of becoming a sound designer? Well, I would suggest a really good liberal arts education because with the, with the specificity of this, you're not going to get your hands on this until such time as you get to New York. So the chances of someone dealing with wireless microphones mm -hmm. in Allentown isn't good. Mm -hmm. But what you can get is a basic understanding. Uh, I mean, you have to have some logic, and you have to have some idea of what period music is. And you have to have some idea of what things sound like and why. In other words, if something is harsh, which frequencies are they that makes it, make it harsh? As a general idea, you know, where would you go on the filter set to make it? And, you know, there are, there are graphs and things about what notes the piano hits and what frequencies. And if you're interested, you can find out and research what it is that makes sound carry, what it, may, what it is that makes sound echo, so that you have some sort of, but mostly it would be done on your own. Although there are schools that have Miami University and Oxford and certainly NCSA, and Yale, I think Yale has a small, pro you would be surprised how small uh, the programs are, but they do have one, Yale. Well, it sounds like a good business because there are not so many people who know about it or would actually try to get into it. Well, that's correct. So, <laughs> However, <laughs> yes. that's the good side of the yes. business. Well, we the, want to emphasize the, the, the size the, and the reason that you would go into it, though, is because you love to do it. Oh. Because... Hmm. I don't believe that there's, there's not a lot of money to be made mm -hmm. doing this. What does a sound designer earn? Well, that's a good question. Uh, well, I seem to specify in those jobs where no one has any money and we're just trying to get this show <laughs> off of the ground. So you can earn, for instance, 
anything from the job I just did in Poughkeepsie mm -hmm. was a fee of $1,000. Now, that doesn't sound too bad until you try to <laughs> average it out over eight weeks. Yes. And then you're in trouble. Now, Broadway shows you can make a sound uh, a fee of $15,000. Is that for a musical? That's for a musical. That's okay. probably the high okay. end. So the high end is about 15000 per musical. Right. And the, and the low end is about 1000 But the problem with show business is it's not based as normal jobs are, uh, you know, they're based on you come in for a week and you make this money. If the show postpones a week or it runs an extra week in previews, you get no more. Mm -hmm. So if the show's in trouble and we have to close it down and go into rehearsal and it opens three months later, you're expected to be there. And this is where show business is not like any other business and why you have to really love it if you want to do it. You must. I do love show business. I mean, I so love there it. You're, you're here. <laughs> That's <doing> correct. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do love it. But the other thing is that as a prop man, mm -hmm. to mop the stage once a day, you can make probably the same amount of money that a sound operator would make, or, you know, in some There's cases... There's another opportunity. That's true. But, so but, that's why more people mm -hmm. would like to mop the stage <laughs> than be told by the 10 people in the music department, as well as the actor, right. as well as the composer, because everyone has their view. Well, what pleasure are you getting out of this? Well, there is a certain... There is a great pleasure in it. What is that? The great pleasure is in... When you know that the audience is having a good time and that it's very exciting and not too loud and not too soft, because it's, it's definitely hard, it's, it's so subjective that some people will, I mean, I've had directors who thought it was so excruciatingly loud and the person sitting next to them at intermission would go and get an infrared headset because they couldn't hear. So you, it's hard to get everyone to agree on what is loud enough. Mm -hmm. And especially if people want it more exciting. Sometimes they think that more exciting, this has happened in the movies now, because you go to the movies and they're really loud. Well, isn't that part of it that the audience has gotten louder too? And more rowdy, yes. Yeah, we're, we're a louder culture. <laughs> it so is true. Everything is louder. That's true. I suspect that that's true. But the size of the Broadway house hasn't changed. No, but their voices have changed. They don't project in the same way, I suppose. Correct. And so... That gives you more opportunity. Well, yes, it does. <laughs> but let me show you this, yes. <laughs> which I think is my job. <laughs> I love you. I love you. See, there are the two actors whispering on stage. I see. I and see. the sound man making it loud enough so that... <laughs> See, what they're trying to achieve is a certain intimacy. Yes. But they, in fact, achieve the opposite. Mm. Because the lower they go, the louder the sound man has to go in order to have the audience hear them. So when they want it to be really natural, as you say, the, the projection aspect of performers is... Has changed. Has changed. And not for the better. Um, but on the other hand, you wouldn't have this business going of sound designer if they didn't need more mics. It's more I opportunity and jobs. actually not true. You I want to cut out your job here. No. But when, for instance, Cheetah did... Rivera. Chicago. Yes. She knew that no matter how low she got, mm -hmm. 
She could, she had to hit the fifth row. So she only got so low. So the dynamic between how low she got and how loud she got is actually clamped. Mm -hmm. So it's not, it's not from whispering yeah. to screaming. So, because when you whisper, no one hears you. So you have to whisper as though you think you're whispering, but, and the audience knows you're whispering, but you can't really whisper. No. Because the more, it, it's self-defeating for the actor. And that's a hard thing to convey. Do you have these discussions with I actors? Had a, I had a discussion <laughs> with an actor when I, I just filled in for someone doing the Mac and Mabel revival in mm -hmm. L.A., and I had a discussion with an actor who was in uh, a show here in town. And I said, you know, Douglas, you're, you're defeating yourself by getting so low. The lower you get, the louder I have to get. And he said, oh, well, I could do that in my show in New York. <laughs> and then you have to try to uh, make them understand why it's not good for them. That's another skill you have to have. That's correct. Because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make it better. If, if what you're trying to achieve is a live performance, yes, we're here. But it used to be in the olden days that we were there to make the back of the balcony and the back of the orchestra here as well as the first row. Now, somehow it gets totally distorted when the actor or actress can't be heard other on the other side of the orchestra pit. That's a whole different thing. Right. I, did a Sondheim show where two actors were on stage and one actor said to me, how will I hear the actress who was 10 feet away from them? Will I have a monitor? Oh. <laughs> and I wanted to laugh and, and say, oh my heavens. But you see, this is the problem with common sense is it's mm -hmm. sort of, no one understands what's expected of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and I believe that the actors and actresses have sort of fallen down and were been led down the garden path mm -hmm. by the by microphones and by what their use is in the in the theater medium because in the theater medium in in recording medium it's a totally different thing yeah. you can lie, lay down six tracks of trumpet and an actress who can't be heard and you can mix them so that it's all fine in a theater it becomes different because even with a wireless microphone you're still uh, dealing with feedback. You're still dealing with how loud this mic can get. Does it pick up the orchestra as well, which is so loud? Or your heart beating so hard. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> when you're frightened, when you have stage right. fright. <laughs> so that becomes more of a problem. And, and actors now think that they're just going to be spoon-fed as far as, you know, what, what their job sort of is is to show up and whisper. And, oh, well, you and have quite a lot on your plate. <laughs> so it wouldn't actually do my job in. I see. To have them project, or at least loud enough. I always tell them that they have to hit the fifth row. Mm -hmm. But certainly, if two actors are on stage and one actor can't hear the other actor, Oof. that's not a good thing. That's not a that's good not thing. That's not a good thing. Now let's take it from the beginning. You're, you're hired by the director, the producer. They used give you to be script. the director, and now it's the producer. Now it's because the producer. When in the Michael Bennett, Bob right. Fosse, Gower Champion All people days. you worked with. That's correct. I, I actually got to work with Michael Bennett, Bob Fosse, Jerome Robbins. Stephen Sondheim. Yes, that's correct. So Gower in, Champion. That's right. In those <laughs> days, they would hire you. Yeah. 
because that was sort of the era of the director, where the producer would hire the director, and it didn't matter how much money he spent. Michael Bennett knew what was going to work in the theater and what wasn't going but to work. But today the producer hires you. Today he the gives pendulum you the sort of swung towards the bottom line in the producer. Right. He gives you the script. Yeah, and you have a meeting with the director. Okay. So to make sure you'll get along with the director. Okay, but okay. we know already you can get along with everybody. Uh, you yes. described how you've had to. You get so, along with everybody. And, and you get the script. You get the script. And you go through the script with the director and try to pick out, are there sound cues? Mm -hmm. Which one? Because those, that thing you can do ahead of time. Yes. So you go through and you look at what the script calls for insofar in so as sound cues. Mm -hmm. And then there are other things that they don't necessarily know that you just know because it's sort of common sense. Like if someone puts a record on a turntable, they may say, hey, we want to use this record. Now, in front of that cue should be the needle drop. Ah. Right? Yes. And you have to figure out how it's going to get off. Does someone reach for it and scratch it? Mm. To take it off, does someone lift it off? Does the mechanical... So that's the stuff that the director may not know, or right. may not have to know. But there may be other things in there mm -hmm. that you have to build in. Mm -hmm. So after you go through the sound effects, then you examine how many actors there are for a musical and how you would mic it. Mm -hmm. uh, now, even plays today use wireless microphones. Right. It's sort of sad, but... They do. They do. Uh, and the question, always in my mind, is, is, the, is it better? Mm -hmm. In other words, have we passed better? You mean using the mics? Using no. the mics... Well, let's assume we use the mics. Right. But now, but for what purpose? And in other words, for Cheetah, it yeah. would be correct. Yeah. But to allow someone who can't do the job to do the job. Mm -hmm. Is that necessarily... Well, you don't start arguing about that with the director at that moment. Well, uh, at some point you have to say what you expect from the actor. Oh, okay. You so know, you, so you, you do have to have some confrontation here. That's right. You have to say, because what's coming next is the orchestration. So then you get the music. You right. have to work with the conductor. You have to get along with him, too. Absolutely. That's <laughs> correct. And mostly, I've worked with I mean, there are most, Paul Gemignani mm -hmm. is, is a great, great conductor because he takes charge of the orchestra. And as with most things, though, now conductors don't want to take charge. In other words, mm -hmm. whatever the orchestra needs. Mm -hmm. Could you just do that? So they're not really in charge of the orchestra. In an ideal situation, the conductor, but you have to know music and work with the conductor so that the sound effects are going with the music. Correct. And also with the orchestrator. There could be horses coming That's around. correct. I mean, in they the could, middle of the parade could section. Could be Oklahoma or something right. in there. That's right. <laughs> Cows. <laughs> but mostly the orchestrator, mm -hmm. the old orchestrations from the 50s, the way that they can do all these shows in concert version with, lava, with omnidirectional lavaliers is they were scored very well by the orchestrator. Mm -hmm. When Ethel Merman was going to sing, nothing played. A violin played, a oh, flute played. When she stopped singing, then the brass came in. Oh, I see. Nowadays, the, the tendency is to write the record orchestrations oh. and try to put them in the show. Oh, very So then when you get into the theater, oh. 
there's a lot of competition. And you can't hear the singer because there's 16 trumpets in the way. So there's so much that the conductor can do before the orchestrator has to come in and say, oh, maybe, uh, maybe uh, circle that for now and we'll do that in the record. Yeah. Jonathan Tunick knows is probably one of the only ones still who takes into account the person he's writing it for mm -hmm. so as not to put anything obnoxious or untoward under the voice so that when you get in there you don't have to uh, just subdue the orchestra mm -hmm. to the point where it sounds like it's in another room <laughs> you know because that's not it either no. you can and that, there's a tendency to do that as well let's put them in another room mm -hmm. let's uh, let's baffle them let's and then when you get what you get is an orchestra that sounds like it's surrounded by cotton rather than an articulate orchestra so you don't want that either. So you have, but you ha yet you have to sort of guide these people, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because whereas given enough time, they'll figure it out. But I sometimes see my job as like trying to cut through. Mm -hmm. This will work, mm -hmm. and this will will not work nearly as well. And you're going to be so unhappy. Mm -hmm. So why not go for something that's cleaner, that will give you more of what I think it is that you're going for. So, so you've got now the, oh, the music, and you've right. figured that out. Do you have to order the equipment yes. or do some yes. thing? What's the next well, part of Well, count your... the number of actors. Count the actors. Count the actors. Figure out how many wireless microphones you're, you're yes. using. How many pieces in the pit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Right? How yes. many pieces in the pit. Because generally speaking, you need to mic everything, even if it's only for monitoring on stage. You know, you need even the loud instruments like the drums, you have to send to the actors for the dancers on stage. Because if it's underneath the stage a lot, they need to, in those Fosse musicals, so hear that, that beat. It has to go out and, and it, has it has to go to back. Come, that's correct. Okay, that's this is correct. complicated. It is, gets more complicated. It gets more complicated. So, so then you figure all this out and then you... You order the, order equipment. the equipment, and you have some shop list of your, yeah, that's your shopping. correct. And generally speaking, you send it to uh, the three shops in okay. New York. And they bid on it? And they bid on it. And whichever shop, sometimes you take the low bid, mm -hmm. <laughs> and sometimes you, as a sound designer, what you learn is what show just closed and which shop is sitting on the good gear <laughs> so that you know if this show just closed and went back to the shop that that's the shop that you want because the shops bid it as though if I have a million dollars worth of gear sitting here that just came back I'm going to let you use it for no money because I have to make payments to the bank oh. if the shop has no equipment and they have to go buy a million dollars worth and as with most things they're not necessarily hits yeah. So if, the big, if a big musical you know, runs for six weeks and closes, the sound shop can be stuck with making payments on the million dollars all through the summer until mm. the fall. So you have some of the equipment here. I have some. Tell us a little bit of what, what are the, these, the million dollars well, this, of equipment. Well, this, in the olden looks days, like a pipe. it's a shotgun microphone. Oh. And it looks like yes. that. It, and it used yes. to sit on the foot, in the foot mics. And this, this was the first sort of, other than laying a mic on the floor, this was how in the 60s, and I say that, I mean, uh, Carol Channing wore a wireless for Dolly. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, in the 60s and the early 70s, most things were area mic'd. Mm -hmm. 
So you had five of these along the foots, mm -hmm. and overhead you would hang, on chorus line originally we had five of these in the foots, we had three of them on a pipe halfway upstage, and two of them on a pipe all the way upstage, and no one had a wireless. Wow. And, and I heard it. Exactly. How is that possible? <laughs> and the pickup is really good, and the good part about it is that you hear a better blend. That's the, the good part is yeah. that you hear a better blend. The bad part is the actors have to, like, give it out. They, yeah. can't, they can't whisper. No. So now there's other equipment right. they use, so the whispers. It, it went from this, from this right, to the wireless microphone. Yes, but we saw. But the wireless microphone, that's the transmitter section. Yes. And this is the microphone section, which is similar to the one I have on right now. Uh, which it, we see in people's hair and yes. hanging off their ears. It, it, the hair is always the best. <laughs> yes. Because in the olden days, when you put it here, right, you got a lot of every time. Oh, you put it your was hair. like singing in the rain. Oh. Every time they do, people would do this, it would get louder oh, and softer. And louder and softer. So actually, Gwen wore hers in her hair for Chicago. But now, yeah. now it's taken to be in the hair. You always think there's a fly on yes. somebody's forehead. Because, but now we're getting used to it. Because <laughs> you can't get your mouth closer to this. No. There's nothing that you can do to make it closer. Now, this is ideal and the best place. However, if you have no hair. <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> then it has to, go, it has to go over the ear. Okay. The other reason to put it over the ear <laughs> yes. is if you're going to wear a lot of hats. Oh. So if you put it here and you wear a lot of hats right over it, oh, that's not a good that's thing. That's not good. But once again, what's interesting is in the initial stages, who has the power? Does the costume designer have the power? Mm. Or does the sound department through whoever has the power on the show have the power? Mm. I saw two shows that, that Martin Levan did in the same year one of them was Sunset Boulevard, and sounded, it sounded the best, I think. It was the mm -hmm. best I ever heard. Now, it took place in the 40s, and no one had a hat. Oh, they didn't wear hats. The, in the stage show, they didn't use hats. Because to Andrew Lloyd oh Webber, what's most important is how it sounds. How it sounds. So if it's going to sound bad, if you put a hat on, we're going to figure out how. If you have to have it on when you come in, you take, take it right it. off yes. before you start to sing. Have you ever had any disasters where the thing goes flying off? Or uh, mostly, they... it makes a horrible noise that oh, you hear yes. because you know, it goes <laughs> as someone takes it <laughs> off. But uh, on the consoles today, the other p hard part about it is that, generally speaking, in a, in a musical, one person sings or speaks at a time. Sometimes there are duets, but, and sometimes there's group numbers, but the lead someone speaks and someone speaks back to them. Mm -hmm. Only one microphone can be on at a time. Mm -hmm. So whoever speaks, their microphone ne needs to be on. And whoever spoke two seconds ago, their microphone needs to be turned off. So it's constantly, this person's going to speak. And this person. So when we go to the theater and we see those huge consoles mm, across... Yes there. There might be one or two engineers. Correct. And that's what they're doing. That's right. Only one microphone at a time. Okay. Otherwise it begins to sound like there are lots of open microphones everywhere and it gets sort of muddy and... And you'd hear rustling that's of clothes. That, that's right. You, you never know 
right. what someone's going to say. I often say when you go off stage, people say, well, I'm going off stage. Can I just use my wireless? It's usually dangerous because if someone comes off in the wings and they're singing, the stagehands don't know, is it going out or isn't it? <laughs> see. see, so it's usually better if people are off stage to have a mic on a stand because everyone can tell they're going through the mic and singing. They don't know if, you know, they can say, get out of the way, the flat is going to hit you in the head, and then that would go out on stage. So this is good for a Broadway musical, mm -hmm. but still you're at the mercy of the scoring of the orchestrator because the orchestrator can, as in Dreamgirls almost, but it's, it's funny, we had two orchestrators for Dreamgirls, and... The, f the first orchestrator was, didn't have enough time, and therefore the charts were not very good. Harold Wheeler came in to do Jennifer's two numbers. And Jennifer's two numbers, which are the big numbers, actually are scored just like Merman's. When she screams and sings loud, nothing's playing. When she stops, the orchestra goes, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, then she sings. It seems to the audience as though it's a big, loud, exciting number. But what there, but there is not no competition. So a sound engineer, a sound designer, has to deal with silence. It's the play of Correct. silence versus and, and right. So well, I want silence if the actor is going to sing, right. or a violin or a flute. But what I don't want is if you you can tell you're in trouble if you go to carol music for the orchestra reading, and. They say, is there a sound system because we're not going to be able to hear anything? You know you're in trouble. When the orchestra and the actors are in the same room and you can't hear them at all, I'm not talking about, well, great, right. I'm talking about at all, then the show is in trouble because this is not going to get you out of that trouble. What do you have over there? Something that will get me out of yes, trouble? Yes, I do. I do, as a matter of fact. Why do uh, I but, think you've got but the problem a bag is, of tricks over here? The problem is we, we keep getting uglier, as oh. you notice. Because nothing so is... So we, we need people to design better looking. Well, it certainly is There's small. another job. It certainly is it's small. small, yes. Right? Yes. You know, and, but but yet, it's go? definitely... Oh, you see it all the way around. That's like the singers. The because the problem is, when singers. you put the mic here, Yes. And you can't hear yes. the actor enough. You have to get it closer to their His mouth than here. Yeah. That's the only, this is now we're talking, and it has to be here, or it has to be a handheld. Yeah. And I actually had, when, she, that sh when Shirley MacLaine was doing her nightclub act, she was trying to use a lavalier, which is omnidirectional, mm -hmm. picks up everywhere. everything. Uh, and the microphones that you see singers have yes. are cardioid, so they are directional. They pick up this way, but not this way. So that's what allows them to have a monitor here, because it's not going to pick this, doesn't pick up behind it. What's it on only, the monitor, the, themselves uh, well, or music? Generally speaking, it starts out being one thing and ends up being another. It's oh. usually whatever they want oh, okay. to make them feel secure. Okay. Um, the words. The words, <laughs> but you would say, but maybe, maybe the note, the instrument that gives them their pitch. Oh, okay. Maybe the tempo, if it's a big, thick. And if the orchestra's on stage and it seems to be sort of a wash to you, you need those things to pick out those things that mm -hmm. cut through. Mm -hmm. So while this is ugly, yes. it also has an application because mm -hmm. if you want your show to be a rock and roll show, yeah. and this means that you can't hear very well at all. You need that. 
then you have to go to this. But Did then they the directors use that in rent? yes. But then the directors say it's so ugly. Yeah. Well, the laws of physics <laughs> don't bend. No. <laughs> Shirley MacLaine, as I was saying, was wearing one of these in a necklace. Oh. And she was doing her nightclub act in Dallas, and the 40 pieces were on stage. It's exactly what you would see in the 50s, a, hand, a band singer, you know. And she called me up to say, what am I going to do? Because I can't get anything from the monitors. It just feeds back. And I can't hear myself. No one can hear me. What can I do? And the answer, it was really clear. I said, you can get 100 people to tell you that they'll come and fix it. But the answer is, you're not going to get the laws of physics to break. If the, if the microphone is on your necklace and this doesn't work, you have to do one of two things. I mean, if it's a big hand, it's a big number, go back mm -hmm. to using a handheld because that rejects what's in back of it mm -hmm. and it gets the mic closer to your mouth. But act, even you know, it's gotten so far, it's gone from Broadway even into concerts and nightclub acts where they mm -hmm. do not want to see the microphone. Mm -hmm. So you'll see Madonna and, mm -hmm. and Janet Jackson with headset mic, head-worn microphones, yes. because they want their arms free. Of course. So they don't want to be limited. And they have to dance limited. sometimes. That's correct. There's a lot of dancing going on, so but, they can't be you know, the mic. As I say, God answers all prayers, but sometimes the answer is no. So... <laughs> It, you know, it's all about what you can do, whatever you can do that gives you the results that you want. Mm -hmm. But you can't say, I want to do a rock and roll show, but I don't want to use headset mics or handheld mics. Mm -hmm. You can say it, but you're not going to get what you want. Anything more in your bag? Of no, well, I just wanted to, the other thing, I wanted to do this, this is the other half. This is what, when you wear a transmitter, I see. That's the other. This is the point. receiver. It's just exactly the same idea as a television signal. So the actress broadcasts from here, and it's picked up here, and then converted and sent through wires. And the new wireless is, which is good for touring, you can click this into 10 different frequency positions. So if you're in Akron, and there's something on that frequency, in the olden days you had to send it back to the shop and get another one. Now you can just click to another frequency. So you have more choices as we move along through technology. This is something that technology has changed that's better. Mm -hmm. Oh, good. The funny part <laughs> is that when Sennheiser went to this model, the SK50, from their 2012 model, they made it larger. Oh. Now, no one wants it larger because it has to go on an actress. Oh, so you have to, that's another of your job, taping these things on people. Tape, trying to find <laughs> the position where at well, least, if, if they're going to do tumbling. Oh, and if know, they're wearing a skimpy costume? Correct. Where do you put them? Well, the best place to put them is under their wig. Oh, gosh, under but their wig. But feel how heavy that is. Oh, okay. That's not so nice on your head. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, so I had wanted them to, like, separate it or make it smaller so that the wig people could, you know, more effectively not have it look like a big lump. But even on Crazy For You, when they have sort of uh, strapless outfits, mm -hmm. uh, and on uh, uh, when Rebecca Luker was in uh, Secret Garden, it's really, it gets really ugly about if the pack you is here. You see it on the back You have to see the wire. And it's not pretty. Yeah, pretty. It's not it pretty. It isn't pretty. 
But because nothing's for nothing, you can tape it with tape mm -hmm. to their back, which pulls of their skin off, of course. Oh, gosh. <laughs> because tape, if it's effective, when they're sweating, if it really holds to your skin, oh. then when you go to pull it off, some skin comes off, just like a Band-Aid. Oh. Now, if you do that eight times a week, oh. after the first week, the oh. actresses are saying, you know, I don't really care if you see it. <laughs> yes, put it outside. That's right. You know, so that's another reason to, if you concealed the whole thing under the wig, the mic here and the transmitter here, then you're better off because you don't see any mechanisms or wires. And we did that, you know, if you, if you go in ahead of time enough, mm -hmm. you can go in with the wig people. And it all depends, once again, on who has the power. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, if the director really doesn't want to see these wires in the skimpy outfits, the director will say to the costume designer, you have to help. A little frill. You, oh, right. Little or, or the wig person. Cape. You have to make the wig large enough. Uh, we've rehearsed chorus girls with wig caps with, you know, with the transmitter here so that they get used to the weight. So that they're not thrown on the day when they first go in. They need to see what's coming. Did you ever have a disaster like that old story, you know, the, the, he goes to shoot the gun and it doesn't go off and he takes the knife and then the gun goes off? <laughs> well, our disasters are the other way around. It's on when it should be off. Oh, well, what's happened? But, you know, I mean, in, always you hear of, I just read the AIDA review for the park and it was a horrible review about how every time the actress went off stage, their mic was on. Oh, you could hear them talking? Having their conversations? Right. Oh, that's unfortunate. It's very unfortunate. <laughs> uh, and one time when we were doing Chicago, mm -hmm. I was summoned to Gwen's dressing room because she kept saying, can these things, do these things buzz? And I said, no. She said, there's a buzzing under here. And we pulled her wig off, Romaine and I, and there was a fly oh. under her wig cap. Oh, no. And she had thought it was... <laughs> The, the transmitter. Oh, that's <laughs> so that's about, you know, you don't get, uh, very occasionally the battery part will heat up and overheat uh -huh. and actresses will come scream. up going, yeah, that's right, it's, it's burning me, it's burning. <laughs> but generally, if, an, if a sound operator, I mean, it's sort of like the first rule, you know, if the actress goes off stage, you must have the mic off. You know, if the actress walks on stage saying a line, right. if, if you're on after she says the line, you're late. You know, you need to anticipate what's coming. But nowadays, most people are pretty good about that. They, they sort of know their skill because we've had, you know, 10, 15 years of training of that kind. When did you know that you had this ear and this skill? Well, you know, I... First went out in 1969, mm -hmm. 70, with a bus and truck of I Do, I Do with Phil Ford and Mimi Hines, who I watched on Password the other day. <laughs> and I went away for 10 months, every mm -hmm. state but four. Mm -hmm. And the stage manager said, you know, you should consider doing this as a living sound. And I said, oh, I'm just going back to college and get my degree. And, but I thought about it. Mm -hmm. And then I was doing, for Abe Jacob, I was doing Seesaw, and there was Michael Bennett. And he said, oh, I'm doing this show with some dancers. 
And I said, oh, no. <laughs> I can't do that because I'm going to work on Chicago. Mm -hmm. And the, the way I knew was because everybody kept trying to hire me. Oh, they told you you had this That's correct. ability. You didn't know that, that you had that an is ear correct. or a Well, generally sense speaking, I've had a sound man say to me, you know, I should be mixing this show. I'm really good. And I said, the problem is someone else should be saying that, not you. <laughs> if you're really good, someone else needs to say, we want this person, not you. And I think that's true. People well, when, know. What was it you had? I believe I have one thing. Good. And that is the ability to know how the audience wanted to hear it. In other words, how... In a record mix, you can keep the vocal and the orchestra much the same because you can play it ten times if you miss something. But in the theater, you really come to hear the words. If the orchestra is too loud and you don't hear the words, even though the composer may want it that way because it's exciting, the audience doesn't necessarily want it that way. They're only going to hear it once, so they need to hear it not just a little louder, but the vocals have to be louder by a margin that makes them comfortable, that they're sitting there and they can hear well. That's what I think I had. So it was empathy. Empathy for the audience. For the audience. For the audience that That's you correct, had. exactly. And I sort of knew what made them happy and what didn't. Now, that's not to say if the vocal is this much louder than the orchestra, that when the dance break comes, the orchestra can't come up to what that level was. Mm -hmm. But then if the vocal comes again, then the orchestra has to come down. And that is what mixing is all about. It doesn't just get louder and louder and louder. At some point, something has to get softer in order for you to focus the audience on what it is you want them. It's like lighting does, too. You focus them on what you want them to pay attention to. So you have to know the emotional content of that's, sound. That's correct. So you know where, where, how much chorus. Mm -hmm. Is it just support, or is it going to overwhelm the singer? If you're going to advise somebody on how to get a job, what would you say? If I'm going to advise someone to get a job, I would say the sound people in New York, are, it's a small 10 people, maybe. Mm -hmm. That's all. Everyone not only knows everyone else, but they know what jobs they're about to get. I walked down the street yesterday and someone said, oh, you're doing Thoroughly Modern Millie. I said, I said, oh, I have so many friends now that, now that you know, people just want to get jobs. You could, if you were in Ohio mm -hmm. or, you, unfortunately, you have to come to New York because... Are there, is there an apprentice program with the union? There is an apprentice program with the union, but if someone would call either uh, Sound Associates, that's the Fitzgerald's shop, mm -hmm. or Mask Sound, right, uh, or Promix. Those are the three shops. And that's the best in that you can get. Because when working in the shop, you can coil cable, deal with intercom, mm -hmm. do this, that, and the other, and then they'll send you out on a job. And when they send you out on a job, you'll, you, know, you may be backstage with the monitors. But people, the, the people that are really interested come to the surface really quickly. You know, the people who have a skill and a knack mm -hmm. 
And not that all skills are the same. Some people may have more of a skill for fixing a wireless microphone, which is in no way less important mm -hmm. than, I mean, I can tell you when I went to La Jolla and they didn't work, I know why they didn't work, that something was on that frequency. But to actually say, is this off frequency? Or is it is just the Mexican ra or the me Mexican radio stations jumping in? You know that yes. I don't know. So you'd have to bring the technician out to see if this is the problem. Mostly you diagnose, mm -hmm. like in the hospitals today. You know, but you send them off to radiology. You don't necessarily have to know how to do an X-ray. And how many people would be on a crew? You'd have it. Eight. It varies. Uh, the the load-in crew. When you're loading the show into the, into the theater, it's generally about four to six soundmen. Okay. The running of the show, there's generally one person at the console out front mm -hmm. and one or two persons backstage dealing with the wireless microphones. Because invariably, when perspiration gets into them, mm -hmm. they stop working. If, I mean, a hair can get into them, there's so much that can go wrong. And just because of the nature of the, uh, the wire itself, mm -hmm. then that uh, it's like wear and tear, like a costume. Sooner or later, it's going to give way. So there are quite a few jobs besides sound designer. That's correct. Uh, aligned with Which that are all sound technicians. That's correct, that you sound need technicians. As well. And perhaps if somebody studied some of those jobs, uh, in their home. Correct. Town. And that would be. They might prepare themselves. Right. If, if you had a background in electronics, mm -hmm. could that you know, be good? you could go this way. Mostly mm -hmm. it's, it's about people who love the theater and want to be in the theater and who can yes. figure out how best to put their skills to work. Do you put it to work on a meter? Do you put it to work backstage making jokes with the actress as you're trying to take her microphone off? There never, no actress is ever happy when the microphone goes out, no. when it stops working. There's no way that anyone is happy when that happens. However, it does happen. So the real troopers just know it's going to happen and get through it and come back and joke with the sound man. And, uh, you know, but there can be other situations. So you could come in to sound from a technological mm -hmm. point of view. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of sound effects are fixed and done on a computer. So if you have computer skills, mm -hmm. you know, you can, do, you can come in from that way. Mm -hmm. There's uh, many sound editing programs, Pro Tools. So perhaps you know a lot about computers and you're obsessed with computers. And from there you play the dog bark backwards and it sounds really eerie and maybe that's just the cue they're looking for. So you could come in technologically, you could come in computer, you could come in as someone who just loves the theater and doesn't know what they want to do, but has a good relationship with people. So there are many ways to get it. But in order to expedite a career in sound, you would want to go find a shop mm -hmm. that would support you. You would want to go work at that shop. Another way to do it would be to apprentice to someone. But the problem with living in New York and making no money. That is a problem. We won't have time that, to discuss. That is a big problem. <laughs> because we've come to the end of our I program. See. But that's <laughs> but I the thank other you thing. so much. Oh, please. It was my pleasure. I'm Pia Lindstrom, and I've been speaking with sound designer Arts Mandelow.
Thanks. The American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre is a project of the American Theatre Wing and the New York Public Library's Billy Rose Theatre Collection, Theatre on Film and Tape Archive.